Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Well, welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Um, Sorry if you missed us a couple weeks ago, but our speaker came down with a little bit of illness and we weren't able to make it happen. Um, But this week we're back with one of our favorite podcast guest, Ben Brown. So thanks for joining us, Ben. Yeah, no, thank you. I really enjoy doing these and you girls do such a good job with this. So thank you for doing it for both Ohio and the farmers, but then even really the country. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and you've uh, been a little bit harder to get a hold of lately. What have you been up to? Yeah, so it's we're we're seeing some farms, some fields getting cleaned off, getting some soybeans and corn harvested. And, uh, so then producers have a lot of questions, and so we've been doing some outlook talks, um, a lot of grain marketing presentations uh, for breakfast meetings and and lunches for for producer groups and stuff like that. It's always a good time. Like honestly, that's the best part of my job is when I get to go out and actually you know talk with producers. They all have lots of questions. Sometimes we don't get to answer all of them because we don't have all the answers. Um, but you know, it is fun, and you know, rightfully so. They're looking out for their business and they're trying to figure out the best things to do and, and the best ways to to go about it. And we're just here trying to help, and that's it's awesome. And plus, you get a good food. I've never had a farmer breakfast where you didn't leave you know feeling full <laughs> and satisfied. So um, I, I've. I'm gaining my 10 pounds for my winter that I'm going to have to work off this summer again. So we'll see what happens. But if somebody would do fried chicken, though, that would be awesome. I'd love a fried chicken dinner. (laughs) Noted. Yeah, we'll have to follow us on social media. We'll make sure to share some of the upcoming dates this winter where you can catch Ben around the state. Yeah, and you're doing several too, uh, right? With the corn and, uh, well, I guess the agronomy field days, right? You've got several. And then Amanda, she's got her... Outlook meeting plus a couple others. I feel like you're doing all sorts of stuff. Both of you doing a great job. So, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a busy winter, which brings up one point we've been discussing because Elizabeth and I do get really busy in the winter with all of our meetings. We may feature some of the Ask the Expert recordings from Farm Science Review this past summer. So, if you weren't able to see those, um, stay tuned and we'll feature some of those maybe every other podcast or something like that. Yeah, and just a little plug, uh, if you get a chance, if anybody, if any of the listeners get a chance to come to Farm Science Review, you know, it is a great three days. Um, held in September, just right outside of, well, London, Ohio. Um, it's a really great three days. If you get a chance to come down, we'd love to see you. So, so the, the dust is finally settled from the midterm elections, <laughs> and... You know, we saw the House change hands over to the Democrats. The Republicans held the Senate. The big and question, added and added and some added. seats. Yeah. Um, so the the big question is with the farm bill still pending, and I know a couple weeks ago, you know, they're really saying we're going to get this done this year. What do you see happening? Do you think that they'll really get it done? And yeah, and I guess first, I'm probably going to make a little bit of a disclaimer here, and hopefully, I'm not copying out of the question too much. So first thing, I'm going to make a disclaimer. You know, I don't pretend to be a policy you know analyst and the fact of like you know what does the midterms actually mean to to president trump's administration and stuff like that i mean there's a political sciences department at all these universities we have a great one here at ohio state too that you know that's their job looking at trends how did the analysts do in predicting the outcome of the election stuff like that so i i will say though that it does you know at least when we look at these these house districts that flipped from republican to democrat a lot of them came in 
um, what I'm going to call suburban urban districts uh, right around the fringes of, of cities. If you look at where they popped in, uh, even you know, the state of Kansas, we usually think of Kansas as being a, a very strong Republican state and the fact that you know, they've traditionally had uh, Republican representatives and senators uh, all, all along. Um, even they, along that Kansas City, the western side of Kansas City on the Kansas side, they had a district that flipped from Republican to, to Democrat as well. Um, so I think you know, that's where we saw these flips. Um, you can probably, uh, if we look ahead to maybe 2020, um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is I think this is all really important. Those are districts that could easily flip back. Um, or stay the same, stay in Democratic hands. Those are districts that, that transition a lot, um, and it largely depends on voter turnout. Voter turnout this year was very, very high um, across the country. Even you know here, you know lines were long. Voter turnout was there was a lot of energy on both sides of the line. Um, so I'm not trying to say that any of that is a comment on the administration or the policies in D.C. I'm just saying that this was this was an interesting election to watch um, because we had more people engaged in the process than probably we've ever had. Well, yeah. That's a fact we, than we've ever had, um, and how that and how that relates to the next two years is, is going to be really interesting to watch. Now, specifically to your question about the farm bill, so we had two houses, we had a Senate and a House that were both controlled by Republicans, um, heading up to this that passed separate versions of the farm bill. Now, looking at the two bills, you would think that they were passed by opposing parties, and that's how different they were. There, there really was some some major differences between the Senate version and the House version. And we've spent the last couple of months, I mean, the bills got passed in June, and we've spent the last couple months, really August, September, uh, part of July, um, trying to get those differences worked out. And then they left for the midterms. We're now back from the midterms, and we're on kind of this lame duck phase. Um, and, and so we've spent a lot of time trying to compromise the, the, the differences out. Uh, one of the big ones was work requirements, added additional work requirements in, in the nutrition title that some of the House Republicans really wanted. Um, now that they're kind of faced with this choice of, okay, we can either take the work requirements out of the bill and pass everything else um, and still get it under kind of our leadership, even though it's a lame duck period, still be passed under Chairman Conway's leadership, uh, which Chairman Conway's the House Republican from Texas who serves as the Chairman of the Ag Committee. Uh, you know, then. Uh, they can still pass a bill, right? Uh, is that going to be enough without the work requirements? Um, on the opposite side, the Democrats are thinking, okay, well, we're, we're going to get the House back in the spring. The Senate version was already favorable, more favorable to our interests. I mean, it didn't have the work requirements. There was a, you know, a couple other things that the Democrats as a party seemed to like. And so the Democrats may be sitting over here thinking, well, we can we have leverage now, and that's basically what this election did. Is it, it probably gave some, you know, some leverage, at least in terms of farm policy, um, to to some of the issues that moderate Republicans and, and Democrats probably really wanted, and that you saw in the Senate bill. Um, again, I'm not saying any of that is is related whatsoever to. Uh, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think any of those issues were big enough to to swing voter interest or the result of the the election. I guess. Um, but I think those are all impacts coming out of what we see. So I think they could get a bill passed in December. We're going to have to see some some text really soon because the Congressional Budget Office needs some time to score the bill and get some financial information back and budgeting information back to the to the chambers before they vote. Um, so I think it is possible. We'll have to see some text really quickly. Uh, the other big hurdle is the budget, the the fiscal budget. 
is set to expire um, here the first of December, December seventh, uh, and so you know we'll have to the Congress will have to do something, or we're going to have a government shutdown. I mean, I guess they don't have to do anything, and then we do have a government shutdown. But in, in theory, they would they would do something before that deadline. That's going to take some time. So that's competing against the interest right now as well, um, plus all these other things uh, that the Republicans would like to get done before they, they go out of power in the House side, right? So you're hearing people talk about another round of tax reform, um, another round of immigration. I don't think any of those things can get done because we're going to need the text now, um, and they haven't really started it. They would just That's a nice soundbite to get something done before they go out of power. Uh, make no mistake, I actually think, uh, so even with a Democratic-controlled House in the next Congress, Chairman uh, Peterson from Minnesota um, is probably one of the, you know, the friendliest Democrats to, to the ag sector um, there is, uh, and he'll resume leadership of the Farm Bill. And he was the one that led the passage of the 2008 Farm Bill, and it was very conservation-friendly as well. And so I think, you know, I think he understands and understands how farm policy really works and how it works with farmers. So I, I don't think we're necessarily in, in bad hands, um, at least from a leadership standpoint. Um, and we'll just see how, we'll see how it plays out. But I think we can get one done, but we're going to need the text here pretty quick. Um, if they don't decide to do a final bill, uh, they'll probably have to do an extension. Now, listen very closely. I'm going to kind of contradict what I just said just a, just a little bit. So. There is a positive, I guess, or I shouldn't say a positive. There is a case that could be made um, for not passing a new farm bill and doing an extension. The big one would be in relation to trade and how all this trade negotiations and everything works out and how that affects you know, the ag sector in the long run because we're ultimately going to want farm policy that, that works in whatever environment this trade situation is going to cause, right? And so there's, there's some people that are now pushing saying, okay, actually, what if we waited a year um, for a farm bill, figured out what was happening with this trade, whether a resolved deal or an unresolved deal, whatever that is, uh, and we, um, you know, we have that possibility to design policy that fits that to the best. Uh, that would cause some hurdles, I guess, a little bit. I mean, there are some things that both, re you know, both chambers of Republicans are trying to get through this this bill, and that those wouldn't happen. So that is a drawback from doing that. But I guess the thing is, if, if we're truly thinking about an extension, you know, then the conversation comes, okay, do we do a one or a two-year extension, or do we just extend the current bill five more years? Uh, now, there's drawbacks to all of those things, uh, but I think all those are on the table right now because people are, people are I don't want to say confused, but there's different interest uh, within Congress like there always is, but this time there's a lot of uncertainty uh, that... You know, namely the trade. Trade's the big one um, of how that plays in, uh, and do we do it now? Do we want to wait? Uh, and if we do want to do it now, we're going to have to move pretty quickly. So. Yeah. So now Peterson said that it's his number one priority, but you mentioned there's some competing things there, mainly so we can avoid a government shutdown if need be. So hopefully, it does come into play. But that's interesting too about a possible extension because. Um, with current prices and if we figure out this trade situation then that could really change our grain markets and depending on what type of programs they implement they may be irrelevant or not helpful depending on what happens so that is an interesting point I think absolutely yeah um you know, we do have every reason to believe, even with an extension, farmers and producers will get the opportunity to 
to re-enroll in programs. Mm -hmm. um, so there, I mean, I think either way, whether we get a new farm bill or we get an extension, I think farmers will be faced with the choice of what commodity program they want to enroll in. Uh, and it just, you know, an extension leaves the formulas where they're at, which are right now, at least in the current marketing situation, very favorable to PLC, the price loss coverage program, because the benchmark for the agriculture risk program has come down. Um, however, if we get a new bill and they go ahead and change those formulas, you know, it could make ARC a little more favorable. So I'm not saying that whatever the case, people should choose PLC. I'm just saying that, you know, pay attention. Uh, if it's an extension, PLC definitely looks favorable given the current formulas for the two programs. Uh, and if we get an extension or a new farm bill, you know, we'll have to look at those formulas and, and give a good analysis of where, where we're at. So. Well, either way, um, we'll keep you guys updated, and if there is a new farm bill, I'm sure we'll be working with Farm Service Agency to do some education this winter, too. You mentioned you've been doing some Outlook meetings. Producers are getting ready to make some purchasing decisions for the coming year, so what are we looking at for acreage? Um, what can you tell us to help us make those decisions maybe a little bit better? <laughs> so uh, we're having a great year here in Ohio in terms of production. Uh, right now, uh, we were just kind of having a little bit of discussion ahead of this, you know, talking about some of the yields we're hearing around the state. Uh, right now, USDA's got a statewide average for Ohio for corn at 193. Uh, our That's previous incredible. It is. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's... I was... I was in, in August, I was back in Kansas City with a, a meeting of my counterparts from around the country and you know, I remember at that meeting Illinois was I think at two oh six and we were we were at that point in time trying to figure out or that was their projected, you know, yield. At that point in time we were trying to figure out if Illinois or a state, just any state, could be that much over two hundred. <laughs> um, and uh, we were, you know, we were debating it. We were trying to decide if that was real, if, if that was actually the case. Uh, not only is Illinois doing well, Iowa is now above 200 as well. Um, but in the last progress or production report, you know, we saw a lot of those states did come down in terms of expected production. And as we get closer to the end of the year, usually November is a pretty good indicator. Now we're a little later this year in terms of um, harvest, but I, November is still a good indicator of final yields. Um, and um, at least for the rest of the Corn Belt, um, so basically Ohio West, um, we did see you know uh, yields for corn come down a little bit. Ohio's actually went up. We went from 190 in October to 193 in November. Uh, Michigan's was also up three bushels. Um, Indiana was flat, but a lot of the other states, Missouri was up too, I guess, my home state of Missouri, but um, a lot of those other states were down in terms of corn production. Uh, but still, record yields yields across across the country, um, so that'll weigh on on prices. I mean, just mm -hmm. the big yield. Uh, the good news is, at least on the corn side, uh, use has continued to to, to increase, and, and use has been a very positive side on the corn balance sheet. Uh, if we look at exports, the lower price of, of corn has spurred some additional export markets. Um, if we look at feed use, right now we've got record numbers of livestock across the country uh, in terms of both pork and beef and, and all the other cattle, you know, in terms of all the other livestock animals that, that eat corn, but corn and, or cattle and pork mostly. Uh, we've got record amounts of livestock, uh, so we'd expect to see some, some increases in corn use for feed. Uh, however, the last couple of years have been disappointing. Um, from the fact that last year, even though we had large numbers, we were still down in corn use from the year before. Um, and if we large look, numbers of livestock. Yeah, sorry. Is that yeah? So large numbers of livestock, um, and we used less corn last year than we did the year before. 
If we look at the fourth quarter of 2017-2018, so that's basically the summer months um, for this year, 2018, so these summer months, that's quarter four. Uh, if we look at that and try to figure out, okay, is that a good indicator for the first quarter of this marketing year, so 2018-2019, which is September, October, November, um, you know, that fourth quarter was really disappointing. And so it kind of sets up kind of a negative outlook maybe for feed use, I guess, in this first quarter, even though we have large amounts of livestock. So what are they getting fed with? Well, some of, the, some of its nutrition uh, changes and allowing more DDG uses, dry distiller grains in, in, in feed rations. Um, there has been some more hay increase in and, and silage acreage, basically, but a lot of DDG use. So then the question becomes, okay, what does the ethanol picture look like? If we're feeding more DDGs, um, potentially paying for them, right? Where that's a market, uh, does that make the ethanol picture look a little better? You know, we had a great year from ethanol last year, um, especially on the ethanol exports. We sent a lot of ethanol to our two biggest markets, Canada and Brazil. Um, I'm not sure we can meet those export numbers again this year, um, just largely because we sent so much. Uh, and then Brazil also, we just got done talking about U.S. elections. Um, Brazil just recently elected a new president as well, and their president's very pro-Brazilian ethanol, and they're looking at ways of taking their sugarcane refineries um, and making it to where during the sugarcane season they're able to, to refine sugar, and then when not in sugar season, they're able to produce corn ethanol, right? So they're trying to figure out how to get a pretty good size, a sizable amount of infrastructure on board relatively quick. Um, and so those are going to weigh against this a little bit in terms of ethanol. Um, the other thing, we've heard a lot of discussion lately about the expansion of E15 use to allow yeah. year-round sales of ethanol. Uh, President Trump and the administration in October mm -hmm. you know, made uh, the announcement that they were going to encourage EPA. Uh, again, that's a rule EPA will, will have to, they'll have to determine the rules. Uh, there'll be a comment period. So even even though he announced it in October, uh, the markets didn't move any that day because we still don't have a rule. EPA will have to come out with their rule of how they want to do it and, and propose it. Um, if they do it in May, I mean, it's going to be a busy spring. They're going to have to work very quickly. Um, there's going to be a comment net you know, comment period that goes along with it, and it's likely that the petroleum industry will, will bring up some lawsuits as, as you know, against the Clean Air Act. Um, and so, I, you know, it's, it's, to some extent, E15 is a very good move for corn producers because it encourages use of corn. Um, it, it's a little difficult to see, you know, large expansions of E15 use, even if they get it done this year uh, or in May, uh, just largely because we, we have a small amount of infrastructure that can take E15 use. Uh, only so many stations carry it now. Give the commodity organizations like Corn and Wheat um, here in Ohio and the refiners, Corn Refiners Associations, they're doing their absolute best to help you know bring new new gas stations on board um, with the infrastructure and the pumps um, available. Uh, the incentives are, are low. Uh, there's not very many incentives for a gas station on the corner to put in E15 use because uh, they're going to have to sell it at a discount because E15 for a mile per gallon is is less than E10, right? And that's pretty well documented that you travel, you know, less on the same amount of liquids uh, with E15 than you do E10. So they're gonna have to offer it a discount to make it a you know comparable for the consumer. Um, well, they're only selling so much. So when I go to the gas station, even if the price is cheaper, I might drive more, but unless I'm going back to the same gas station every time. 
um, you know, I, they're only selling me 13, 15 gallons each time I go. Um, and so from their standpoint, they're wanting to charge the highest amount possible each time. Um, and so even lowering, you know, that price down for E15, selling more of it to consumers, um, really isn't much of an incentive for them to put in the infrastructure. Um, so they're not looking at replacing E10 with E15 across the board then? Well, so they likely E10 has become such a standard. I mean, it's pretty much mm-hmm. blended in almost all of our gas now. It'll probably have to remain its own separate until okay. more and more people uh, become adjusted to the E15. Now, most cars after 2001 are, are capable of holding E15. Um, but it does. I mean, they'll they'll still offer E10, okay. um, and so it's just adding the additional infrastructure and the pumps um, to offer E15 for those that don't currently offer it. Now there are gas stations that do offer E15. There's gas stations that offer E85, um, and so they'll have to they'll have to be that incentive for infrastructure. Um, it's just currently not there because. Even while ethanol is cheap to buy, um, it's not making up the difference of the mile per gallon um, discount. And so uh, I'm not seeing a huge boom, I guess, in ethanol this year, and I actually think our exports could be a little bit lower um, this marketing year from the 2017-2018 marketing year, just given you know where our exports go. I do think the future of ethanol is, is international sales, international markets, uh, especially like the Chinese. and and expanded in Brazil and maybe the Philippines and the European Union, stuff like that. Um, but we're gonna have to build those markets. Um, and, and so for this year, you know, I'm, I, I think we could actually come down a little bit from, from what the estimates currently are for this year um, and be more comparable with last year's estimates for corn use for ethanol. So um, the reason I bring all that up is because if we look at you know corn, you know there's some very favorables. Yes, we've got large amounts of corn produced, uh, but demand is holding uh, and exports are spurred largely by the lower price, um, but we're picking up some of these additional markets. So export demand or corn demand looks pretty good. If we look at the soybean side of the equation, you know soybean demand is largely one word and that's China right now. Uh, um, it's we we export 50% of our soybeans uh, out of those 50% 60% of those soybeans go to China the Chinese market in the last couple of months at the start of the marketing year uh, we've lost or we're down 94% in soybean exports to, to the Chinese uh, we've only had a couple of shipments actually out of Illinois that have made it over there um, they're buying from Brazil they're paying the higher Brazilian price um, than the US price but it's still favorable to the Brazilian because the U.S. soybean price plus the tariff is still higher than the Brazilian soybean price. So the Chinese are buying the higher Brazilian price, but it's still higher, or it's still lower than the U.S. price plus the tariff. Um, and so anyways, uh, that's, that's driving the soybean equation. We've seen prices react accordingly. So if we look into the winter and we think about what's happening, we've, we've pretty much finished harvest here in the United States. We've got a couple more things to go. And I know people in some cases are, are still got quite a bit of corn and soybeans out there. But there's two main drivers this winter that are going to affect corn and soybean prices. The first one is uh, production in South America, in Brazil and Argentina. Uh, last year, Argentina had a pretty significant drought, um, really hampered both their corn and soybean productions. Uh, Brazil had a record year of soybean production. They had really favorable weather, uh, and they set a new yield record on soybeans. Now, their yield record is about 50 bushels an acre, so still less than the U.S. Uh, in terms of what we'd consider you know, a good good national soybean yield, um, but they're 50 bushels an acre, so uh, a little less than us, but 
Uh, overall, they, they had a very favorable year. They were very favorable. Um, looking right now, and given that there's the high demand for Brazilian soybeans, they've increased their acreage, and their acreage is currently up 7% um, from a year ago. Um, earlier this year, just kind of given their projected trend lines and looking at you know cost of production in Brazil and then market prices, we were expecting them to increase production 3%. Now, Brazil's got an interesting case that the U.S. doesn't. Brazil can bring new land into production. They've got, they've got both a yield factor of increasing yields um, per acre, the intensive, and, and then um, they've got the, that they can bring new land into production. And so we were expecting them to increase land um, for soybean production, um, but then since the enactment of the tariffs, the increase in, in soybean price for the Brazil, it's really incentivized their producers to plant more soybeans, and so they're they're up seven percent um, in total total land. So looking at South America, if I was sitting right here today and they didn't have their first rains of the season, um, I, I would say that that bodes well for the United States, both in terms of being able to sell soybeans into some of these markets, um, but then also uh, potentially the U.S. renegotiating. A, a deal with China, right? Um, China, I think, would be more willing, but they're having favorable weather in Brazil. Um, it looks like their crop's going to be doing okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing this winter that'll really affect markets is, is intentions to plant here in the United States. We've got producers already starting to think about their plantings uh, for next spring, whether they're going to plant corn, soybeans, what to buy. Uh, when we start seeing these earning reports, this sounds terrible, but when we start looking at some of these big corporations and looking at their earnings report, we can kind of figure out what producers are going to start to start to plant or what they're thinking about planting because it's going to show up in what they buy from from some of these major seed companies in their earnings reports. Um, so we don't have those yet so we're just kind of making expectations um, but one of the one of the things that is duly noticeable in the United States is we don't really have the ability to add major sources of land right we're pretty much we use the land that we have for for production is pretty much it uh, we can add some more here and there. We've got some in pasture land in different places. And then there's about 24 million acres in the Conservation Reserve Program, which is the federal government's program that sets land aside not to be planted um, that, that then is put to conservation grass, basically, or other types of practices. Uh, so, I mean, that's pretty much it. That's, that's about all the land that we could add back in. Uh, and we plant, you know, in 2017, the reason I bring up 2017 is because if we look at corn and soybean production in the United States, that was the year where we reached a new new record for corn and soybean production. We planted about 90 million acres, 91, 90 million acres, um, uh, both corn and soybeans. Um, we've since come down from that. We've reversed a, a kind of an increasing trend of expanding corn and soybean production uh, in 2018. So we were down a little bit in 2018. I think that could even fall further in 2019. Um, based on, you know, we don't have new land. We're basically just dividing up the, the same pie different ways into these different crops. Um, however, most industry analysts, so people kind of like me across the country that work at university that try to figure out, you know, what's the national share of land going to be. Most universities would put corn production anywhere, or corn acreage, um, anywhere between 90 and 94 million acres. Now I've got it at 91, so I'm a little bit on the lower end. I'll explain that here in just a second. If we look at soybeans, um, again, we planted 98 million acres this year. Um, most industry people have it somewhere between 82 um, and 87 million acres. I've got it at 86, so I'm a little bit on the higher end for soybeans. A little bit lower, a little bit higher on so a little bit lower on corn, a little bit higher on soybeans. 
What does that mean? Well, that to me, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not expecting as big of a shift from corn to soybeans as what others are thinking. Um, if we look at costs, and, and Barry Ward does the cost budgets here at Ohio State, does a great job, absolutely great job for producers out there. If you're not using Barry's budgets, take a look at them. I think you'd really, we're very fortunate to have Barry here and he does a good job for us. But um, if we look at Barry's budgets and we're figuring, you know, just a return on, you know, basically the cost structure and we're putting in currently the futures prices um, for both December corn of 2019 and November soybeans of 2019. Um, and we, we figure in a 200 bushel corn field and a 60 bushel soybean field. You know, we're looking at returns to variable costs um, for corn at 329 and returns to variable costs for soybeans at 321. Now that's on high productive cropland. Um, so your cash rent is going to be a little bit higher, but this is just variable cost. So that does show favoritism towards corn. That does encourage some producers to, to favor corn. If we throw in total cost, now this is all cost um, for everything, um, then soybeans are negative $29 and corn is negative $70 per acre. Um, so both are negative. Soybeans <laughs> are less negative than corn. It's not a very positive picture from that standpoint. And I, hate to, I hate to even say that. But um, that's not to say we're not going to plant corn and soybeans. If you sell a negative number, a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to plant anything because I'm going to lose money on every acre I plant. Now, this is, this is all the bells and whistles. This is putting on the fungicide, the herbicide, and paying for a land payment. Okay. If you didn't have land, that'd be different because you'd actually be returning some. You, you wouldn't have a land payment uh, or a rent payment, basically. Um, but this does suggest that maybe we're going to see an unwinding still. I talked about we reversed a three-year trend of increasing corn and soybean acreage. Um, I think we'll see less corn and soybean acreage again this year. Um, I don't think we'll see a huge flop, though, um, from corn and soybean acreage here in Ohio, but maybe more towards the western corn belt, so Kansas, Nebraska. Um, and then the, what do we do about the Dakotas? So right now, basis and soybean price in the Dakotas is very low. Um, they're getting a very low price for their soybeans. And there's a lot of producers up there that probably aren't going to plant soybeans next year. Uh, they've probably looked at their budgets and, and you know, they're just they're sitting with a mound of soybeans, you know, taller than their house, and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. So then, what do they plant? And this is the big question for me, at least, is okay. If they're going to plant the soybeans and corn in the Dakotas, what are they going to plant it to? Um, I think the expansion is going to come in spring wheat. So that full season wheat um, in, in the Dakotas, I think you could even see a little bit more barley, some oats. Um, I think down in Kansas and, and Nebraska, more Kansas and Oklahoma, I guess, in Nebraska, I think you see an increase in cotton acreage. I think you, you pull in some cotton. Um, I think all those come into play, and you, we have to look at this from a national standpoint. In Ohio, we might not see a big change. The country, you know, that's a different story, and we could see some acreage shifts. Um, throughout the country, the rule of well, and we don't have a lot of options here. To that's switch. right. I mean, we we pretty much it's pretty much corn and soybeans. Fortunately, in some cases. Yeah, if you add in wheat, um, if you add in wheat, I mean, it's pretty much a double cropped wheat, and you're still going to plant soybeans. Um, I mean, I think we have the most wheat acres that we I've did. seen go out in a long time. Yeah. We are up in wheat this year, and so I guess my question, and we, I mean, I've talked with several farmers; they're still planting to plant a double crop of soybeans behind it. Yeah. Um, the question is, okay, we have this huge increase of spring wheat acres, or not spring wheat acres, but plantings of wheat uh, for the spring. Um, and 
are they going to follow it up with soybeans? Are they going to leave it blank afterwards? I mean, that that's a big question, I guess, is, is what does the soybean picture look like with this increase of winter wheat acreage here in Ohio? Now, the Dakotas, they're spring wheat. They're not planting a second crop behind it. I mean, they plant it in the spring, they harvest it in the late summer, early fall, so they don't have to worry about a second crop. But um, I think all those are coming to play. I was going to, real quick, uh, so the kind of the general rule of thumb, at least for green marketing, is if we look at the national scale, and if the ratio of corn price to soybean price for next year's marketing is, is 2.3, so soybean price is 2.3 times above the corn price, um, then we see a favor towards soybean acreage, right? So if it's, if it's above 2.3 to 1, we see soybean acreage picking up. If it's less than that, we see an increase in corn acreage. Right now, that ratio is sitting at 2.33. So we're basically <laughs> right there, right? And so this is kind of why I'm maybe a little bit more spectacular you know, skeptical of that we're going to see a huge shift in acreage nationwide. I think we will see a shift, but I'm, I, again, like I told you earlier, I'm a little bit on the high or the low end for corn in terms of acreage and a little bit on a high end for soybeans because I'm not expecting that giant shift. What does that mean? Well, that's going to give a favorable boost to corn price this spring, um, and it's going to really hamper soybean price. So for those people that say soybean price can't go lower, um, it can, and <laughs> given our stocks that we have on hand, um, I think it is probably reasonable to expect uh, a little bit lower soybean prices as we move into the spring. Um, oh, but that's those, hard to imagine. Yeah. So those those acreage that that acreage report that comes out in March is going to be really important, um, at least from a grain marketing standpoint. You know, we could see an increase in corn, we could see a further decrease in soybean prices, um, and so we'll just see what happens. But that's kind of that's my spring outlook in a nutshell. It sounds like that even though we're having a really good harvest, high yields, that excess bushels will not drive down the price even more. So let me let me go back. So we should be using more corn for feed use than probably what we are right now. Okay. Like we've got large numbers of livestock across the country, um, but we're seeing feed use continually disappoint. Um, I kind of, I mean, we kind of looked into it a little bit. I'd love to go deeper and, and look at this a lot deeper as far as, okay, how much is actually DDGs replacing corn use and feed? Um, because that's a that's a big question. I mean, that's that's something that is at least market analysts, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, what should we put corn price at if we're not going to use as much for feed use? Um, so I think that is a hurdle. And that's not to say we're not going to use large amounts of feed. I mean, we're probably going to still use over 5 billion bushels for feed, probably somewhere around 5.2 billion bushels for corn, or of corn for feed. Um, right now they've got it at 5.5. Uh, that's, that's high given where we ended last year's marketing use a little bit. So I think we could actually see it come down. We use the bulk. We use 40%, over 40% of our feed use for corn in this first quarter. So we're going to find out here in the next couple weeks exactly are we going to meet our feed target or is USDA going to reduce that? Now a reduction in feed use likely will result in a reduction in futures prices of corn. Um, however, corn is still, we've had a really good year. I kind of mentioned that, you know, we've had a really good year both here in Ohio and across the country in terms of corn production. We've got a lot of, we've got a lot of corn, but the positive has been that the demand has really kept it and that's kept our corn price from even falling further than what it did. Um, and we're starting to see a little bit of break uh, from the soybean price. They both fell down pretty consistently, both together. Uh, now we're seeing corn and soybean prices kind of break from each other. A little bit of an increase in corn, uh, soybeans kind of leveling out. 
um, or even slightly on that decreasing stand. Great. Another question to ask that we didn't talk about is, is what do you do this winter with this trade? Uh, and and here's, here's the deal. Like, I mean, we've got all these fundamental concepts. I can sit here all day and we can talk about feed use. We can talk about acreage shifts. We can talk about um, exports to China. All those things are great. That's what we used to look at. Um, but anymore, you know, any any talk of a, a trade resolution with China gives us a, a spike up in, in prices, yeah. right? So both uh, the administrations are meeting, Chinese and U.S. administrations are meeting in Argentina at the G20 summit later this week, or I guess really the beginning of next week. Um, prices spiked at the at the thought of that we could get a resolved deal. Should I sell at that spike? Um, I, I'm taking a really good hard look at it right now, at least for our farm, because um, you know it, we could see record soybean production coming out of Brazil and Argentina. We could see some acreage, you know, these acreage things I'm looking at. Um, I think soybean price could go a little bit further, um, and so if we get a spike and I have the chance of selling nine dollar soybeans, you know, I'm going to look at my cost structure and everything. Yeah. But I, I'm thinking that might be a pretty nice target to shoot for. Well, and that, I mean, you touched on it there. You've got to know what your cost of production is, where your break-even point is. And if you do get close to that or above it, then you should probably consider it pretty pretty heavily. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, I mean, we have, I don't think I've talked to a single farmer who hasn't maxed out or nearly maxed out his storage capacity. So there are a lot of bushels waiting to be priced if we do get... A spike so are we gonna see like a quick downturn in price when we flood the market with I mean with and that's what time? happens I mean and that'll that'll kind of be what happens uh, at least in the cash price right the local cash price and stuff like that yeah. um, you know it'll kind of level out a little bit uh, we do control for some of that variation at least in terms of sales by knowing how much we have on hand the stocks to use mm -hmm. um, and then the amount of forward future sales right so I mean a big chunk of soybean sales this year 40% nationally um, it differed from state you know was sold ahead of time, right? So it's already being sold and it's being used. So that uh, all those come into play when you talk about does it, you know, counter price if all of a sudden we start selling a large amounts of soybeans. It would. Yes, it would it would counter um, and take into that account. So I, I don't know. We'll just see what happens. Uh, you bring up a good point about storage. I mean, the farmers that during the really good years, about, you know, 2012, 2013, you know, the farmers that put up storage uh, made a really smart investment. Um, they paid off some debt and they put up some storage um, and, and they're benefiting from that right now. Uh, the, if you look at returns to storage, now this gets a little bit complicated, but basically what I'm saying is if I stick my, if I stick soybeans or corn in the bin right now and I look out to the future months, so you know each corn and soybeans have future month contracts throughout the year um, of what they're willing to pay me like let's say for delivery in May, um, actually there there are returns, there are positive returns to storage, even commercial storage. So paying you know that five cents, seven cents a month to store soybeans at the elevator, you know there's still returns, commercial storage, commercial storage returns um, that are positive in those months, and that's very un unusual. We usually don't see that in in at least at harvest, maybe later times in the year. Um, but part of that is. Uh, grain elevators are still taking into account an increase in basis. We've got we've got weak basis, um, mm -hmm. both for corn and soybeans. If you look at those at those harvest elevator prices or at those elevator prices for four, future months, 
um, you know, the, they're using the basis that comes off the Chicago Board of Trade, but then they're, you know, providing the basis that they're going to use to create a cash price, right? That's that local cash price. And they're, they're expecting for soybeans, some of them are expecting a 30 cent increase for a basis. Well, that's where we get our positive gain, right? Now, I don't think you can. I don't think you can expect basis. If we get a reason, if we get a resolution of this trade deal, yes, basis will likely improve. Um, but I don't know if you can expect basis to improve that much between now and May, or 40, 50 cents. Uh, some of these elevators, right? Um, so if I'm if I'm sitting here, you're you're asking the question, what do I do with the stuff that I have in storage, right? Um, if the elevator would is going to allow me, if I take my beans. To the elevator, I store them. I pay my five to seven cents, eight cents, whatever it is for storage at the time. Um, I'm going to ask them about a forward contract, um, saying, "Hey, would you give me? You know, if I store these here, can I get you know whatever you're expecting right now, given that basis and that futures price for May? Um, and if it's above, you know, my my returns to storage right now, I'm probably going to look at it pretty heavily because I think they're actually underestimating what that basis is going to be. If you look at elevators across Ohio right now, um, if we get there and that basis is still wide, you know, we're probably not going to see those returns to storage like what we're seeing right now. So, just something to keep in mind. Just something to to be watching. Well, that was a lot of great information. <laughs> Hopefully not too much. I always just talk too much. I'm sorry. I have a problem with that. I always learn so much. Yeah, really, talk yeah too much. we really do. No, and I think that we just need to keep an eye out for what's going on. And um, like we mentioned, the Outlook meetings are coming up this winter. So um, check those out, listeners, um, if you want an update in the next couple months. The article with those dates was posted on the Ohio Ag Manager website, um, and if you're subscribed to that newsletter, it should be coming out in the next newsletter. So, um, Ben's talking at all of them, I think maybe except for one location. So, pretty good. Are you? Okay. Yeah, I think I'm in all of them. Uh, pretty good opportunity to see him then. Yeah. Come for the food. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I'm just worth the food, but. Uh, we do enjoy these, and these are good, and they're a lot of fun. More so, just as a, I mean, as working at a university, you know, I love getting out and about. But this is the true land grant type program, right? I'm getting to talk with farmers about stuff we're working on out here, but more so, we're finding out what's on their mind. Um, so, if if anybody has any questions, feel free to email me. Um, you know, we'll we'll take a look at it. A lot of times other people have asked the same questions that we have. Sometimes I respond, sometimes we don't. Um, but this is how we kind of gauge what to work on and where to focus our research and our knowledge. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. I enjoy those outlook meetings a lot. And Ben's also been helping us develop some grain marketing curriculum. Um, so we're going to have some workshops in Western Ohio um, coming up in January and February as well. So if you're interested in learning more, um, it covers the basics up through um, futures and options as well. So um, look for those to come out too. And I guess we should probably plug Precision University while we're at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's coming up in January, right? Yeah, January 9th at the Bex facility in London, Ohio. Um, watch our social medias to get the opportunity to register for that event. I think we've got a great lineup looking at making decisions in season, um, especially focused on application technologies. Yeah, we're bringing in several speakers from universities around the country, so it should be a good day. 
I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. <laughs> Will you have fried chicken? Um, usually pork loin. Oh, okay. Very, very good pork All right. loin. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. Brian Huffrey's the uh, pork producer's executive director. He's a good man. He'll be very, <laughs> he, he'll be very happy. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.